Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, good evening, beloved. See, those were the Baptists right there, yeah. (laughs) Claire, anytime you need an amen, you need a room full of Baptists, all right? Well, it's good to be with you all, and this is the closing evening of um, the Bangor Worldwide Missionary Convention. Um, It is the second time I've had the privilege of taking part in Bangor Worldwide, and uh, it's gotten sweeter. Your encouragement, your hospitality, uh, the fellowship in song and in the word and the hearing of God's work around the world. I don't know about you, but uh, this week has just been the wind I needed in my sails. It's just been the encouragement I was hoping the Lord would give me, and I pray that it's been that way for you too. I should uh, say just a couple of words of thank you. Uh, thank you to the uh, committee, the leadership of the committee that organizes the Bangor Worldwide, uh, my brother Raymond and Tom and Cecil and Leslie and uh, Norman, and I'm sure I've missed someone, but I'm not from here, so that's my excuse, right? Actually, my name, Thabiti Anyabile, is an African name loosely translated, which means I'm from Bucknall, right? LAUGHTER <laughs> And a hearty thank you to Chris, who has been my host and provided such wonderful accommodation. It's been a blessing to be there. And a thank you to all of you who've come this week and who have come with open hearts and eager hearts to hear of God's work in the world. I had planned to sort of close the convention tonight uh, with a brief sermon from Genesis chapter 12, looking there at... God's call upon Abram's life as a window into his call upon our life. I had three points there, that the Christian life is a going life, that the Christian life is a great life, and that the Christian life is a guarded life. Those three points now I just give to you for free because now we're going to look at Luke chapter 10. You find it if you're using the Bibles in the pew on page 1046. And the reason I feel burdened to take us to Luke chapter 10 tonight is because of what I've heard in the two presentations prior to this one. So taken with the bishop's understanding of the context and the culture, the the sort of exegeting of of the people and the place here in Northern Ireland and encouraging us, if we're going to be faithful with the gospel in our day and time, we actually have to live and know our day and time. And then listening to my sister Claire speak so eloquently and powerfully uh, about engaging our Muslim neighbors and friends and the growth of Islam in the UK, that, 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 that hit me in a number of ways. Some of you know I'm a former Muslim, so I was resonating with so much of what she said. I'm a pastor, and probably about six years ago, I got a letter from a couple that I had met at a conference, not too unlike this, who lived in the northeastern United States, and it was a, a long appeal 
for help because their daughter had met online a young Muslim man from Egypt and had renounced Christianity and converted to Islam and had run from the family to Egypt. And in my own church, I had two women, a part of the congregation, uh, in the span of about three years, two women in my congregation do the same thing, meet a Muslim man online and marry a Muslim man, and it's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. See a young woman whose head is meant to be Christ take as her head someone who does not know Christ. And so I'm sitting there listening to these two presentations and I'm thinking to myself, okay, that point in my sermon has been made and that point and that point and what to leave the people with. And I think it's this. Tonight we're thinking so much about taking the gospel to our neighbors that I want to suggest to you that the largest, most effective missionary force in Northern Ireland, all respects to the, to the organizations that have come here, are, are not those organizations. They're not our denominational mission forces. They're not our parachurch mission forces. They're, they're not the, the missionaries here whom we wish to pray for and support and give to. But I want to suggest to you that the largest, most effective missionary force in Northern Ireland and in the UK and in in Washington, D.C., where I'm moving to work for the Lord, are Christian neighbors when they really live and act like Christian neighbors. Let me ask you this question. What if God has seemingly shrunk the world to the extent that peoples from all over the world are regularly rubbing shoulders and working together and living next door to each other, what if God has brought the nations to your doorstep so that he might make missions easier for you? What if he's seen us in our lack of missionary zeal and our evangelistic apathy and he has said, they won't go, so I'll send the nations to them. Our text, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 26, is a well-known passage of scripture. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And what I want us to do is sort of look into this text into, for, for a window onto what the gospel is and what the gospel does and how it is, secondly, that being faithful Christian neighbors makes us the most effective Christian missionary force. Read with me God's word here. Follow along, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, 
said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Notice how the text opens here in verses 25 to 28. We see this lawyer stand up and and notice his motive there. He's wanting to test Jesus. I I guess he assumes he's in the courtroom and, and he wants to put Jesus on trial and he wants to inspect whether or not this young upstart rabbi really is all that, all that he has heard about Jesus. He tests him with a profound question. It's the question of all questions. It's the question that determines eternity. It's the question that determines whether or not we meet God in his loving acceptance or whether or not we meet God in his frowning judgment. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Maybe you've come tonight and you've never asked yourself that question. But I want to say to you, this is the most important question you could ever consider. How are you going to live beyond this life? How are you going to live with God in his kingdom? How are you going to experience the the fullness of eternal life, the abundance of life that God promises? How do you get that? How do you gain that? From where does it come? Notice the interaction. Jesus takes this student of the law And he turns the question back on him in verse 26. What is written in the law? How do you read it? And here's a guy who gives a great textbook answer in verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus says that all of God's law hangs on these two commandments. Love the Lord God with all of yourself and and love your neighbor like yourself. He, He goes in his answer correctly to the heart of all that God requires. A full soul love of God and a full soul love of man. Answer correctly. Jesus says so in verse 28. But then our Lord, if you'll pardon the phrase, 
He tightens the noose. Verse 28. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Think about that for a moment. That the kingdom of God and life in that kingdom may may be had if a person can love God with all their heart, mind, and strength and love their neighbor like themselves. Or to put it another way, you may earn your way into the kingdom of God if you can love God and love neighbor perfectly. Now, the important question is, how many of us have? How many of us could? Oh, we can't. We're fallen creatures. We're sinful creatures. We, we have not loved God perfectly. We cannot love God perfectly because we, we're born with this corrupted nature. We, we're bent away from God. In fact, we love things other than God. We love them as sinners more than God. And we have not loved our neighbors perfectly. We have seen them in their need and we have not come to their aid. We, we have sometimes spoken ill of our neighbor because he's left some grass trippings in our, in our yard or his dog makes too much noise at night or some other such thing. No, we, this, this is the tightening of the news because this is the enforcement of the law. And by God's law, we are all condemned. I want to suggest to you that even though this lawyer gave a textbook answer, and his answer was correct, he knows that he's guilty even as he gives the answer. Why would we say that? Look there in verse 29. He desiring to justify himself. Notice what's happened. He came testing Jesus. Now he finds himself being tested. He he came trying to put Christ in the dock, but now he finds he needs some reason. He needs some justification. He needs some way of declaring his own righteousness because his own question now has, has been a snare. He wants to justify himself. That's a crucial mistake. That's a crucial mistake. For none of us will be justified before God by how we live. None of us will earn a righteous standing before God. How does the writer in the Old Testament say, if God were to mark our transgressions, if he were to number our sins, if he were to take an account, who could stand? None of us. And so we seek not to justify ourselves, but to find some justification, some righteousness from outside of ourselves. My good friend, Dr. Al Moe, is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He said something a few years back that's always sort of stuck with me, and, and, and I like to use it sometimes. He says, most of us, this goes to study in the culture, doesn't it? Most of us think that our problem is out there and our solution is in here. 
But the gospel comes to us and says, no, our problem is in here and the solution is out there. That our problem is our sin and none of us are justified before God by our works. But but the solution to our sin problem and the solution to our, our need for righteousness hung on Calvary and was buried three days and rose again, Romans 4.25, for our justification. The problem is inborn. It's our corruption. The solution is alien. It's the righteousness of Christ which becomes ours when we repent of our sin and place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who was the Lamb of God sacrificed for our sin and the one who was the perfect righteousness of God who obeyed God in our place. Then we may be justified with God, declared righteous, Forgiven, pardoned, treated as if we were Jesus Christ. Oh, beloved, if you've come asking yourself tonight, how can I have this eternal life? Please, do not try to justify yourself. Do not try to build your case before God as if it's going to be influential. You will lose that case for your sins, your sins, my sins, are too plentiful in his sight. But if you cast your eyes away from yourself and cast your hopes upon Jesus Christ, claiming the gospel promise that he will be your righteousness, and and claiming the gospel promise that his sacrifice has paid your debt of sin, well then, then you will be justified before God and justified in a moment and justified eternally before God. And this life will be yours if you repent and believe. Now I want to quickly look at the parable that Jesus tells here. Because the man wanted to be righteous in his own sight. He wanted to justify himself. And so he asked this question, well, who then is my neighbor? And, and obviously the, the direction of the question isn't expansive. It's contracting. He's not thinking everybody should be my neighbor. He's thinking what small number of family and friends inside of my, my AT&T phone circle do I call my neighbors? I don't know who the phone carrier is here. Forgot where I was. I'm sorry. I'm from Bucknell. <laughs> but you see, he's looking for some small group on which he could build his hopes. And Jesus tells this parable, which we have read. And the main point of the parable is your neighbor need not look like you, be of the same religion. But your neighbor is that one whom you come into contact with who needs compassion and mercy. That's that's what's happening here with this Samaritan. Notice that Jesus chooses the Samaritan who was the, the sort of ethnic and religious other, the outcast in the eyes of religious Israel. When we're told about the priest and the, and the scribe who traveled that dangerous road from Jerusalem to Jericho, you know, the listeners would have thought, surely the priest and the scribe would be the heroes of the story. But not the way Jesus tells it. 
They cross over on the other side, having seen the man beaten and left for dead, but thinking of themselves. And along came a Samaritan who sees the man and allows himself to feel for the man. If we're going to be Christian neighbors and and we're going to be the greatest missionary force at home where we live, we're going to have to learn to feel for people. And and not just people who have some, some earthly need. We're going to have to learn to feel for people who are lost in their sins and trapped in the darkness that Claire talked about. What oppression must it be? And I'm speaking from experience. To have been locked into the strictures of Islam. To be locked in its false claims. To be locked in idolatry. That's darkness that requires mercy. And, 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 and what, what mercy must be needed when we contemplate that millions upon millions of people made in the image of God, made for fellowship with God, are on their way to a Christless eternity. They're going to meet God in his wrath and in his holy judgment. He's going to cast a just sentence. And they're going to be cast out of his grace and love and favor and fellowship forever. got to feel that. We got to let ourselves stop and think about that for a moment. Whether it's our Ulster neighbor or whether it's the, the, the European immigrant to the community or whether it's the, it's the Muslim immigrant to the community or whether it's the, it's the child entrusted to our care who doesn't yet know Christ. We got to feel this, beloved if we would be the Christian neighbors that we ought to be. And notice something, simply being orthodox is not enough. Dotting our I's and crossing our theological T's, that's necessary. But simply having the right theology and going to the right church, that's not what makes us God's evangelistic force. The scribe and the Pharisees had that as far as they were concerned, and yet they were not neighbors. Neighbor is someone who sees your need and responds with compassion, who enters into your suffering and brings the relief of Christ. See, the most natural and effective missionary ministry are those Christians who live next door to non-Christians who live like Christians next door to non-Christians who express a genuine Christian concern next door to non-Christians and so we've been talking a lot about a call to missions I I hope you'll see that there is a a kind of um, common way in which we use that phrase when we talk about crossing cultures and boundaries and going to a people in some other place? Yes! And a thousand times, yes! That's a call to missions. But I wonder if you see that if Christ leaves you at home, he has made you no less the missionary. He's made you no less 
the ambassador of heaven pleading with men be reconciled to God. And he has brought the nations to your doorstep, Banger, that you might do that on home turf. Oh, both the law and love demands that every Christian be a merciful neighbor. Where I'm from and where I'm about to go to, we don't use the word neighborhood. We've contracted it to just hood. You know, you ask a brother if if he's from the hood, you you need to know what that means. You don't don't need to come to the Americas and the United States and, and, and go to some hood and not know what that is. That's That's a place where things tend to be rough. One of the brothers here tonight, uh, this week, telling me a story about being in Washington, D.C. and going jogging and happening to sort of jog out of what we typically think of as Washington, D.C., the monuments and all that stuff, across the river, the Anacostia River, and and he didn't know it, but he was in my hood. And he was running along the river in the hood, and, and a couple of the brothers said, hey, man, you know where you at? He did a wise thing. He kept running. (laughs) And the the brother said, that's right, man. Don't stop. (laughs) You know, the the remarkable thing about just that little slang referring to hoods is what it drops out. Drops out neighbor. Hoods have become places where there are no longer any neighbors. And simply living next door to one another doesn't make us neighbors, does it? Not in the rich sense of mutual care and affection and compassion, which we see here in this parable. And the problem with dropping neighbor out of the word neighborhoods is you're left with hoods full of hoods. And God's plan for the reversal of that and the reaching of the nations that he's brought to your doorstep is that you and I would move into hoods and become neighbors and carry the gospel to the nations where we live. And that falls upon each and every one of us. Isn't that our Lord's great commission? That we would go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, my Presbyterian friend. I'm sorry, that was, that was cheeky. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We're, we're brothers in the Lord, we, we play this way. I, that was cheeky. He'll, he'll get me back, he has a last word. <laughs> Into all the world, baptizing him in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all the world includes Bangor, Northern Ireland, and the UK. It includes where you live. And we have a special stewardship. God has appointed the place where we live that we might represent him right there and that we might also go from there to other places. So I I guess what I want to say tonight in, in closing is that none of us are off the hook for this commission. We all have a part to play in it. Some of us will go to other lands and and hear the calling in that way. And if that's you, oh, please lean into that calling. God has great things for you. Don't resist it. Seek his grace. 
And some of us are called to stay and to pray for that work and to give to that rope. As one missionary said, to, to hold the rope. We're lowering them into the, into the bowels of the earth and somebody has to hold the rope. So let us who stay, let us be faithful to pray and let us be generous in our giving for the support of those who've gone. But as we stay, we're also called to be neighbors, to do the work of evangelism and disciple making right where we are. And that work is the highest form of mercy. For we'll be meeting men not dead, nearly dead on a Jericho road, but we'll be talking with men and women who are dead in trespasses and sins. And the only balm that will raise them to life is the gospel of Christ. Let us share it. Let's pray together. Well, precious God, as we come to the conclusion of this meeting, we look forward, Lord, to yet a future meeting. A meeting when we shall surround your throne in glory, casting down crowns, exalting your name, crying with the angels, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we read in your word that there will be people in that assembly from every tribe and every language and every nation on the earth. And the great work that goes on between now and that day is going to the tribes, going to the nations, going to the language groups, and making Jesus Christ known. We want to lift him up, that all men would be drawn to him. We want to declare his glory, declare his praises, declare his ransom from sin, that debtors and trespassers might be freed. We want to declare his resurrection so the dead may be raised to life in him. Fill us with your spirit. Fill your church with your power. Come upon us in fresh waves of, of zeal and mercy. Enliven us, quicken us, give us compassion, give us love. Stir us with the plight of those around us and, and motivate us with the certain knowledge that if we know the gospel, we know everything we need to know to see even the most radical Muslims saved. The most hardened atheists born again the most commonplace neighbor rescue to eternal life. Give us confidence in the gospel for it is your power unto salvation for everyone who believes. Oh Lord, fill our hearts and our mouths with that power and reign again, we pray, pray in all the nations of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.
trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.